1: Welcome back to Saved by the Bellini" the podcast. I am John DeBerry, and this is the podcast where we take a behind-the-scenes look into uh, my cocktail book Saved by the Bellini," which is a love letter to the 90s as told through cocktails. And in this series, we're going to be talking to various people who had some level of influence on this book, uh, esoteric or more direct. And uh, this interview that we're going to listen to next is with uh, Brian Raftery, who is a journalist and writer. Uh, And he wrote a book that was tremendously influential to me. Actually, it's one of the reasons why I chose to write about the 90s. Uh, This book is called Best Movie Year Ever and How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. And in this book, he talks about how it was this really special year for cinema and how it really defined kind of the 90s and sort of the way um, that we look at movies Uh, and so many really iconic movies came out this year that year the matrix the star star wars phantom menace you know uh office space it's like every iconic 90s movie came out in that year and reading that book kind of blew my mind to to kind of put all those pieces together and so i was so grateful that he i emailed him out of nowhere and he got right back to me he's super super kind and uh generous, generous with his time uh and we just had a really enjoyable really fascinating um interview and i hope you enjoy it too. cheers Okay, Brian. Hi. Thank you so much for thank you so much for uh, for joining me for this conversation. Um, yeah, no problem. As as I explained to you over email, I'm I wrote a book called Saved by the Blini, which is a cocktail book that's kind of an ode to the '90s. Uh, yeah. And your book was actually one of the very early seeds uh, of my book. Uh, I, I sort of casually got it from the library back in 2019. <laughs> Because I loved all these movies, and I was like, huh, oh, this, this sounds cool!" Like it's a very specific book about a it. very, <laughs> you know, one year in, in cinema history. And I, I I read this book, and I loved it so much that I actually set up. I should forward you the email because it's pretty amazing. I set up an entire <laughs> 1999 film series that was going to run through the entirety of 2020, and I was going to have all my friends come over. We had this whole I had this whole elaborate voting system on how to pick which movie we would watch every month. And um, something happened in 2020 that prevented me (laughs) from from actually doing it. Um, We only did one in January and it was for being John Malkovich and it was awesome. And I had friends who were planning on doing like PowerPoint presentations about office space and like labor rights. Um, So this book was like one of the kind of deep underpinnings for this book that I ended up writing last year. So it took a few years to gestate, but it was just such a... Such an awesome book and I loved reading it. I, I bought it. I got it from the library and then I purchased it. Like that's the only time it's ever happened. Um, <laughs> and you're you you end up in the book, in my book, not I, I name you in my acknowledgments, but the I have a I have a cocktail that's based on the Blair Witch project. Um, that I was love it. <laughs> really heavily influenced by your chapter on the Blair Witch project. But so I wanna get to that. But at f- first I just wanna like I'm just so curious like how this book came about. For you and why you picked this year of all the years that you could have possibly written about.
3: Well, you know, it was a couple of things. One is that you know I I lived through that year. And, I mean, Me I I started an internship at Entertainment Weekly in the summer of nineteen ninety nine, which wow. was possibly the best year to ever be a working in publishing before the whole industry cr- crashed. Yeah. Um, but also. I had gone from, you know, I went to Penn State and kind of in the middle of nowhere. I hope people who go to Penn State don't take that as as an insult because it really is the middle of nowhere. And, you know, suddenly I went from this place where seeing movies was really kind of a little bit of a fight to all of a sudden I'm in New York, I'm in Entertainment Weekly, I can see, go to screenings, I can go to the Zig. you know, I can go to, I had kind of some amazing movie going experience. and that year i remember in the office um there were a lot of kind of like you know grown-ups like people who i respected who seemed they were all in their 30s or 40s but they all seemed very grown up and very smart to me which they were and even in the, that summer i remember kind of listening in on meetings and hearing people say this is a really good movie year did you guys all see blair witch have you guys seen the Ma- like mm-hmm. is the matrix still playing have you guys heard about have you seen the trailer for three kings you know this, there was this conversation that something was going on that made it feel kind of really special. And that year, actually, I think in November of that year, Entertainment Weekly actually did a big cover story, basically before the year was even over, saying something is going on. Like, there's a real sea change going on in movies right now. Maybe it's digital. Maybe it's the rise of of this new generation of independent filmmakers. Maybe it's just the studios being adventurous again. But I do remember um, how exciting that year was as a movie fan, um, but I didn't think of it as a book until many years later. I think um, you know you talk, you talked you talked about a calamitous event in 2020. There was actually another calamitous event in the fall of 2016. Not sure if you remember what that what that mm. was back when the world split apart. Hmm. Um, but I started thinking about Y2K. Like things were so grim uh, after that election that I was really thinking about Y2K, and that's kind of like I should do a book on. Y two K and and nineteen ninety nine and what that year felt like and I did a whole proposal book proposal on all these big cultural and political and social events of nineteen ninety nine and it was everything from you know Donald Trump wanting to run for president to you know to Britney Spears to obviously some of these movies to Columbine and mm. then I had um, I had this great editor at Simon and Schuster named Sean Manning who was like why don't you just make this about the movies of that year and then use the movies. To talk about everything else that was going on, um, and that's that's how it happened. I mean, but I I certainly um, uh, that year to go to movies. I mean, so many of the movies in the book, I remember where I was when I saw them. I remember who I was with. I mean, everything from Fight Club to Deep Blue Sea to Three Kings. To, I
1: mean, to I saw the L- Run Lola Run at Film Forum with my mom.
3: <laughs> oh, I saw a film for him too. I was not with I was not with my mom, um but I did I did see the film. That's right. That's where I saw it. Yeah, that was Oh my gosh, I mean that was a cuz it ran there for a I yeah. think it ran there for a while. Yeah. Um yeah, and like any any movie year where Run Little Run is like maybe number 10 or 11 on your best of list is a pretty good year cuz that movie is if Amazing. Run Little Run came out in 2023, we'd be like this is it folks? Like yeah. this is the movie, you know, this Show is the down. movie of the year. Yeah. <laughs>
1: cool. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's actually just so amazing to think that all these movies came out in the same year. Like that was one of the things about this book that really struck me was like, wait, these movies didn't all come out in like all of the nineties. Like, this was just one year. And, right. like, I, I feel like in the book you have some sort of like a, there's a, it's almost like a, it's like a, an explanation as to why the the schedule was so stuffed for this one year.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, and I think, I mean, there are so many, the thing about movies is that As much as people such as myself try to look at a year and go, okay, let's look at what was going on in that year that that yielded these kind of movies, which I think is really fun to do and something I'll never stop doing. The fact is, you know, movies take forever to make. And some of these movies, I mean, The Matrix had been around since 94, 95. I I can't quite remember, but that script had been kicking around for a while. Some of these movies were kicking around for a long time. So it wasn't as if. You know, it wasn't as if on December 31st, 1998, everyone's like, "Let's make a bunch of good movies next year." <laughs> yeah. But it really was. You know, it was it was a couple different things. One is, I do think um, I do think the studios had really kind of shot themselves in the foot in the toward the end of the 90s. I mean, for all the nostalgia about 90s big studio filmmaking, and, and and I have some of that. I mean, I love I love the fact that La Confidential was like a giant Warner Brothers big star. You know, I love mm-hmm. those kind of movies that the studios were making back then. They were also losing money on... They were making so many bad sequels. They were really trying to replicate formulas that had worked earlier in the decade. They were kind of... They had stars, but didn't quite know what to do with all the stars. They were making movies like The Odd Couple 2, and it was like, what... You know, there's a lot of junk in those last five years of the 90s. So I think there was a sense that... I think one of the big reasons these movies arrived when they did is because I think the studios in the mid to late 90s were like, we've got to do something different, um, you know, certainly when they, I think, you know, something, when, when Godzilla didn't do as well as everyone thought, I think people were like, we, maybe we should try to split our, cover our bets a little bit and not just make big, you know, franchise special effects movies. But I think, I think the other big reason this year happened the way it did was just one of these weird, and, and I don't think this will ever happen again. Um, and I'm not a, would this movie get made now kind of person, because I just right. feel like movies get made the year they're supposed to get made and whatever. But I do think you had multiple filmmaking generations at that point all kind of reaching this real kind of sweet spot in their careers. I think, you know, you had people like Soderbergh who'd come up in the late 80s early 90s indie scene who was who was making a big swing again. You had people who were kind of in the middle point of their career like David Fincher who, you know, was is, you know, a studio guy and it started out in the early 90s and or started out with movie music videos in the 80s. You had Michael Mann, you had these kind of you know kind of mid-level middle-aged sort of guys. And then you had you know Kubrick making his last movie. You had Scorsese making Bring Out the Dead. You had George Lucas directing his first movie in like 22 effort. years. You had, so it was really kind of like all these, you don't get a year where all these different generations, A, are really kind of firing on all cylinders creatively, but also B, getting the money to do whatever they want. And that it, it just kind of felt like this one, there was like this weird period in the late 90s where everyone kind of got to make, the movies they wanted to make—that's—that's that's obviously not true because when you look at who got to make these movies, it's obviously ninety-eight percent straight white guys. So right. obviously, a lot of people were not getting, getting to make the movies. But there was, there was at least room in the studio system for you know, or in the indie system, like for Kim Pierce to make Boys Don't Cry, or mm-hmm. you know, Spike Lee got a huge budget for Summer of Sam, which is a you know, a serial a serial killer movie bankrolled by Disney. You know, it's like there was yeah. all these weird things that just absolutely would not happen now, um, for all kinds of economic and cultural reasons. But it, it, I don't know. I think, I think there was a weird, just sort of a risk taking, let's try something new because the old stuff's not working, um, kind of belief in the late nineties. And they had a lot of talented people to turn to, to try to make that change happen.
1: Yeah. And then also you talk a lot about kind of this Y2K, um, anxiety. About- oh yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't know how much of that is really, cause when I would talk about that with filmmakers, they're kind of like, eh, you know. I mean, I, again, because some of these things have been in the works for so long. But I do think that, you know, even though I don't think that I doubt David Fincher was thinking about Y two K every single day when he was working on Fight Club, but <laughs> that stuff does seep in. I yeah. mean, there is, you know, we, we we turn to artists for a reason, and one of it is be, one reason is because they, whether they know it or not, and for better or worse, they have these kind of finely attuned radars that we don't have, and they kind of can sense things sometimes that are. Going on or about to happen, and I do think there is kind of a real low, un, you know, low lying kind of Prozac Nation era of anxiety running through a lot of these movies. Um, you know, I mean, The Matrix is either a real celebration of the future or a complete like yeah. preview of, of, of apocalypse, depending on how you look at it. And, and I think Fight Club's the same way. I think even saying like Office Space is really kind of for everyone who just laughs at the, them beating the fax machine with a baseball bat. There's a lot of real. Anxiety, and I mean a lot of the. I mean, if you look now at how people feel about corporations and work, I mean that's what office space is about. It's about feeling completely deindividualized by a big company and wanting to wanting to break free of all those structures. Even though it's also just about you know a bunch of guys pranking their bosses and stealing (laughs) stealing money from their from their very dumb superiors. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, people still quote that movie pretty heavily to this day. (laughs) <laughs>
3: yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's still, I mean, these movies are
1: all just overly,
3: I mean, they're still making sequels to some of them. I mean, they just made another Matrix movie a couple of years ago. These, all these movies stick around. Most of these movies have stuck around in a way that I didn't even foresee five or six years ago. I didn't, I didn't think there'd be, you know, another a Tracy Flick book. You know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't, I read that. It was pretty good. Kind of how is it? I? You know, I have to say I love Tom Prada, and I I think that's on my library reserve list. Um, yeah, I,
1: I yeah I had it on a hold <laughs> on my hold list for a long time too, and it was I actually hadn't read the first book because I it, I just I didn't read it, so um I, hard to compare it to you know the movie to the to the to the book sequel, but it definitely like I don't know I feel like there's it, it reminding me of a lot of the I forget which filmmaker you quoted or which historian or whoever it was, but basically like. Oh, it was the someone who lives in Vermont. I forget. Anyway, I'm not being very articulate right now. But this basically that every twenty to thirty years, there's like this bumper crop of films, and this sort of this cycle of, of like kind of rebirth. Um, and, yeah. And that that was kind of what happened in in 1999. And um, is that is there any kind of risk of that happening again? Do you see? Because I feel like we're in a similar moment where there's like, like a lot of this franchise fatigue. Uh, yeah. And, and we are kind of looking back. I mean, I think that you know, the nineties are actually like people are now look, looking to Y2K like as a decade as sort of the, the, the nostalgia center right now. But I think that right. a lot of what was laid out, you know, by the late nineties is what ended up Y2K actually being. Do you yeah. think that we're in a similar moment where we're going to have another 1999,
3: uh year? I you know, it's funny cause I'm always, I am and this drives people I know crazy. I, I, I think every year is a good movie year. I mean, I still go to the sure. movies constantly, despite the fact that I'm, you know, every every sort of demographic kind of in my favor, or every sort of demographic touch point about me is like, I have kids, I'm middle-aged, I don't have a big disposable income, but I still, I mean, going to the movies is still one of my favorite things, and I still get very excited. And actually, when I walked out of How to Blow Up a Pipeline a few weeks ago, I really felt... Uh, like I was like I really felt like It was 1996 97 again mm. Not because that movie Is a throwback It's a very modern it's, a, it's an extraordinarily Good film But there was A real kind of Righteousness Intelligence And real kind of like uh, I don't know if I can curse But like a screw you-ness To that movie That I really Really responded to And I really felt like I'm like, this is something that had it come out in 1997, 98, 99 would have made like 15, 20 million dollars like within Mm. a couple, I mean, it would have been kind of a phenomenon. Um, So I do, I still am very, very optimistic and I still see movies, new movies, often smaller movies that I get very excited about. And then I text my friends who never watch movies anymore. (laughs) They're like, yeah, I'll watch it on streaming. I'm like, you won't watch (laughs) it. Go watch it now. It's very good. Um, So I don't, I don't know if you'll ever get a a year in which so many movies feel so monumental because I, I think the movies feel smaller nowadays. I mean, right. just because there's so much else out there. I mean, there's, there's Twitch, there's TikTok, there's very well-made television. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if you'll ever get a year quite like that. Yeah. I do feel though, there is still room in the studio system and there is still room, um, especially in, among the indie world to really have really kind of exciting stuff kind of break through. I mean, I thought I walked out of everything, everywhere all at once when I, I saw it a couple times in the theater last year, and I felt mm-hmm. like well, it sort of felt to me like it was uh, just sort of it was like it felt very much like the Matrix was to me. Just I felt say, like so, I, I yeah. yeah, I mean, I felt like you know I was seeing as a forty six year old, so and I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the movie a lot, um, but I felt man, if I was 18, 19 or twenty, and I saw this movie, my head would just explode, and all I would want to do is watch more movies like this, which is kind of what I think happened with that movie. I mean, it mm. seems to really resonate with people who are much younger than me. Um, so I still think you can get those movies like that and they can still occasionally get really big. I just think the idea of having so many of them that you're almost exhausted by <laughs> is is tough. I just don't think that there's, um, I just don't think there's kind of the, the cultural inventory for to, for that right now. I don't think movies can reach quite as big, but that could happen again. I mean, if you look at everything in the last six months, Everyone suddenly wants to go back to theaters. Movie, you know, movie yeah. studios want to put pe- movies back into theaters. They want theatrical runs, and if they're willing to take risks like that, maybe they're going to take some bigger creative risks as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, you know, the reason why I chose to write about the '90s, you know, it was the decade where I kind of became an adult, and uh, <laughs> you know, it was very pivotal for me personally. This as a person growing up, but I think also as a decade in our culture, it was like the decade where we entered it with basically without the internet and we exited it with the internet. And it, I feel like so many cultural shifts that um, occurred uh, that we're living in now or kind of happened in the Um, nineties. And is that like, is, is there something special about the nineties for you uh, in, in like in culture, in, in movies uh, that kind of was like distilled in, even to its more essence by 1999, like was 1999, the 90s of the 90s. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Told- I mean, I mean, it's personally, I think so, because I think I'm
3: a few years older than you. So I think I started the 90s by being very music and movie obsessed, but mm. I was only 13 or 14. So the idea of having my own kind of independent life where I could choose what concerts I I could go to any concert I wanted to. I could go to whatever movie I wanted to. That didn't happen when I was 13, 14, 15 years old and, you know, working in a concession stand and not, you know, and I didn't have my own car. And then by 1999, I did feel like, you know, I was suddenly living in New York. So I felt like, I felt like that was, you know, I I, I really try not to be overly nostalgic um, because I just think it's, it can kind of bring you down. But when I think about um, my professional life and my personal life kind of meshing in a way. I think that year and the years that followed were kind of really a peak for just just a very pleasurable moment for me and a really fun time. And the fact where, and the time where I got to do all the grown-up stuff I wanted to do as a kid even though I was not very grown up for a 20, 25 year old back then. Yeah. Um, so yeah, personally, I mean, I felt like, you know, I just I you know, I came I really did come of age in that decade as well and and I do think the movies of that year You know, it's funny. I went. I went a couple of months ago to um, a theater. I live in LA, and I went to to go see. There was a seventy millimeter, brand new seventy millimeter print of Boogie Nights that they were showing, and it was Paul Thomas Anderson was introducing it, and John C. Riley was like a special guest, and it was really one of the best. I mean, it was just. I went with some friends. It was just just a blast. I mean, just I love that movie. I'd seen it a bunch of times. I had not seen the theater. And my friend and I walked out, and we were talking about what it was like to see that movie, and remembering what it was like to see that movie back in 1997. And this idea, and it was almost kind of poignant. Like we both kind of walked out thinking, "Oh, we're going to get movies like this all the time. Like this is this is it. You know, this is this is kind of our future as movie nerds. We're going to get stuff that's kind of exciting like this all the time." And I think that did happen in 1999. I think that was kind of the year where that promise of those kind of movies that were challenging and kind of, uh, exciting and creative and weird and grown up and made you want to watch more movies. Like those kind of movies, it did all sort of arrive that year. And I don't think I ever quite had a year culturally like that, like that again.
1: Yeah. Okay, cool. We're going to take a tiny little break and then I'm going to talk to you about the Blair Witch Project, uh, which was (laughs) heavily featured in my book. So we'll be right back.
2: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere, Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: So we're back with Brian Raftery, author of Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. And um, in, in my book, Say by the Bellini, I have a uh, cocktail that's based on uh, The Blair Witch Project, uh, which is a movie that I myself saw in 1999 uh, and was sort of reintroduced to the, how it was made and, and just how unique of a movie it was by, by your book. And, and it really was, you'll read their head note for it. And it's, it's very much, you can tell, you can tell I read your book by reading this. <laughs> and I just want you to hear from you about like, wh- you know, I, I have my own probably hypothesis about why this movie was so special, but what, what to you was made this movie so, so worth writing about. And I think there's probably a reason why it's the first one in the book that you that you cover?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, one thing that helped me a whole lot in the book was like I was able to cover right about the year chronologically, and Blair Witch, oh, okay. you know, you arrived, <laughs> you know, premiered at Sundance in January nineteen ninety nine. So that was very <laughs> convenient okay. for a struct stru- But also, I do think that movie, um, you know, it was so definitive of that year, and I wrote about. It, I mean, I wrote about it in depth for a couple reasons. One is that I absolutely. Love that movie when it came out. I saw it at a screening in midtown Manhattan mm. and I truly, I'm not lying. Uh, I mean, I really was gripping like the armrest, which I've never done. I don't do that. <laughs> and I remember walking out. I mean, you know, this was a couple weeks before it opened and it was really humid out. And I was just walking around midtown Manhattan feeling really kind of screwy by that ending. Um, so I, I loved it, and you know a lot of the movies a lot of the books in the movie are movies that I feel very strongly about um, I didn't re- just write about movies that I love, but I, like I said I loved a lot of movies that year so that was one that I wanted to go deep on. but I also think you know to me it's that movie is so important um, because it it really does feel like it was the last movie that was kind of a secret and I think yeah. it was a movie that was made possible the phenomenon of it was made possible by I think the quality of the movie, which I know some people still argue about but also just the fact that I'd been hearing about it on the internet for mm-hmm. months at that point, and there was um you know there was even a bootleg going around, I think, at that point too, which was kind of a crazy thing, but it had this myth attached to it, and again i don't I don't think I walked in believing it was real. I'm pretty sure I knew it was fake because I'm trying to remember too I was
1: like, I think I may have had it ruined for me that it was fake.
3: Yeah, but at the same time, and because I, I think Entertainment Weekly actually like ran photos of the cast. At some, yeah, I mean, they, the cast went to Sundance, even though they tried to keep them out of sight. Like, I I wasn't that night. <laughs> I, I knew what was going on, <laughs> but I think it was also like a fun thing where it's like, well, what if we all just collectively feel like we don't know? And right. and 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 I do think the movie is so effective in how it's structured and how it felt very. It, it did not feel like any movie I'd seen before. And I also the thing I love about that movie, um, aside from how crazy the production was, and the fact that it was you know a filmmaking collective, and they were from Florida, and they made it for so cheap. I mean, all these outsider great stories um, was when I was reporting the book. It, that movie is still so so, so divisive. I feel like mm-hmm. anytime. I talked to anyone who was forty or over in 1999. Like when I was talking to actors and filmmakers, sometimes we'd go off record and they'd want to tell me what they thought of certain movies. (laughs) Most of the people who were forty and over hated it. Like they really hated it. I remember. I remember. I think Alfred Molina was like, "I didn't get that movie at all. I I thought it was terrible." And you know, and I respect that because I do think I think there was a real kind of um, break in in the kind of demographics of that movie. And I was 25 and I was like, "Oh, I." I love it. I've played video games. I watched the real world. I I know I can, you know, I came up on MTV. So I, the whole editing rhythms of it did not throw me off at all. Um, and I, when I rewatched it for the book a couple of times, I was like, this still freaks me out. Like it still is. The, the performances are fantastic. Yeah. But I also, I do think that movie sort of tells you what the rest of the year was going to be like, where. You were going to have these movies that were very daring, that kind of came out of nowhere, um, and that had, and in some way were kind of tied to the technology at the time. I mean, Blair Witch was very obviously tied to the internet and the fact that they'd done this marketing campaign and made people think this maybe this was real. And that was very exciting and could never be done now, obviously. Um, But so many of the movies of that year were were kind of playing around with the technological limits of the late 90s, which were about to get, you know, those limits were about to get kind of blown up very big in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I love how that movie, like, I'm trying to think, like, if it would be, you know, if if the internet didn't exist when it came out, like if it came out in the 80s, if it would be more successful or less, because it's so much of that, like this sort of like viral campaigns that happened in the late 90s with like, there was a little weird glitch in the trailer that you downloaded from the website and then you like right. went online. I think it was AI actually had this like really, really elaborate. Oh yeah, where yeah, you're hit, right. Where there was like a glitch in the, in, the, in the credits at the end and you put it in this one website and then you got a mailing or something. It was like, I don't know if people have the patience for that these days. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, but the the weird thing is the way the media was back then, Blair Witch still needed this kind of ma- – because the thing about Blair Witch, which is kind of amazing, is that it was on the cover of Time and Newsweek yeah. right, right around the same time, which is – um, I mean, I think if I remember correctly, the three movies that were on the cover of Time magazine, and for people who are much younger, being on the cover of Time magazine a long time ago meant a, it was a huge deal.
2: Yeah,
3: um, it was basically like what everyone's mom and dad considered the mainstream. <laughs> and I think the three movies that were on the cover of Time magazine in 1999 were the Blair Witch, the Phantom Menace, and the Pokemon movie. Like that's wow. how that's kind of how big Blair Witch was. And it was on the cover of Time and Newsweek. I mean, it did have this kind of real mainstream kind of breakthrough at a certain point. And I don't know if it had only lived online. I mean, you know, Skinema Rink is the closest thing I earlier this year, I oh, think, yeah. to a movie that was truly viral, that was a horror movie that I I know it got some mainstream attention, but it didn't matter. I mean it was it was very much organically from the internet. And you know, that was a big movie of that, you know, relative to what to its budget. But Blair Witch made over a hundred million dollars. And I think it needed it needed people's parents being like, "Okay, I'm gonna go see this movie," and then walking out angrily and not yes. understanding it. I mean, a lot of people bought tickets to Blair Witch and walked out and yep. didn't like it, but they still bought tickets. Yeah, <laughs> <You> know, it's <laughs> like it, it was a very successful movie in that regard.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, and what do you think about uh, just like the how that sort of affected like movie making? going forward from that, like what do you think that it was like allowed people to make movies that were more like that and more kind of informed by, I think you said resident evil in the book. And I think that that totally prepared me to watch this movie, but like, was it sort of like a a emblematic of what was going on or was it sort of like ushering in like permission for people to kind of like take a more like raw and real approach to filmmaking and, and kind of have like less of an attachment to these like very coherent narratives that kind of was, you know, standard for, for filmmaking Prior to that,
3: I think there was. I mean, I think you know, I think the like the the sort of immediate impact of Blair Witch has always been kind of overstated. I mean, there weren't mm-hmm. five million found footage movies. I don't think the right. first even Paranormal Activity was to like two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. Um, but I do think. I mean, I think. I don't know. It's hard to say. I do think that the fact that Blair Witch was a digitally shot movie that managed to make a hundred million dollars, um, and so was weirdly The Phantom Menace. <laughs> I mean, that's, True. The it's that's like, a good thing. It's like I didn't I didn't go into it too much in the book, but digital filmmaking really. You know, I, I get into it a little bit, but that was a really breakthrough year because not only because this could the super rich guys make stuff digitally and have you know and have it look. You know, Phantom Menace is a really interesting looking movie. I'll say that. Um, but, you know, the Blair Witch guys did that, too. And then I think you did see in the next couple of years, you did see more filmmakers um, using digital. I mean, I'm thinking of like 28 Days Later when mm. there's that kind of, I guess that's high-def DV came in, which for a couple of years, you know, a couple of movies used that. And it's a really interesting look that really dates those movies to the early aughts. Um, but I certainly think Blair Witch kind of opened the floodgates for that. But I also feel like if Blair Witch hadn't done it, Someone else, Someone else would right. have. And yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of movies that year were messing around with narratives. I mean, Run Little Run was, you know, it's the laziest thing to do is to compare it to a video game structure, but that's literally, it's literally what it really is. What it you keep getting <laughs> a new life. Yeah. And I think, I think at that point, I mean, I, I do think there probably was a divide in who got Run Little Run and who got uh, Blair Witch based you know, on age, but I I, yeah. I think those movies, I mean, I think for if you were young enough to understand the language that those movies were trying to um adapt from film, you you could run with it. And you could kind of run with anything after that. You know, and but the nineties had also I mean the Limey is also a great example of a movie that just uses fantastic Editing and kind of blurring memory and what's real and what's going on, you know. There's no kind of temporal kind of through line, mm. and you know that's based that's inspired by an old Lee Marvin movie. So movies have always been kind of screwing around with structure a little bit, but I do think the the advent of digital, which really allowed you to literally chop things up much quicker and blur them together, um, certainly sped that along in the early aughts.
1: Yeah, it's almost like the '90s were the decade where things got flat. You know, where <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Not, you know, not to quote uh, Tom Friedman, but yeah. Um, And we're almost out of time, but I just, uh, I'm, I'm just sort of curious, like just from your own personal, uh, preferences and and not through any kind of, you know, academic or journalistic uh, standpoint, like what is your favorite nineties movie
3: of the whole, of all the nineties. Wow. I don't know. I walked out. Is it easier? Is it
1: easier to pick a ninety-nine movie?
3: (laughs) No, it's. I mean, it's. it's, They're both hard. I mean, I did walk out of Boogie Nights, and I remember being like, I think this might be. I was just like, I hadn't seen a long time, and I was like, I do think this might be. Like, it's just, it is such a pleasurable movie, and I know it's. You know, it's. It has the same. I don't know It's tough It's really tough Because there's been There were so many movies I mean It's funny My 12 year old Just had a bunch of friends over And they watched Clueless And I'm watching A bunch of 12 year olds Watch Clueless And they're laughing at everything And I'm laughing at all this stuff And I'm like This holds up remarkably well Like It's just like I can't imagine I can't imagine how these jokes When we started I'm like Is this movie going to make sense To a bunch of 2023 kids But it did. It's and it's a really. It's like maybe probably the best comedy of that decade. It really holds up so well, and it's very funny and very sweet. And um, but at the same time, you know, some movies in '99. I love the Limey. I love um, Three Kings. I and I, you know, a lot of these movies. I I could easily change my list every day, but certainly, mm. I don't know. Boogie Nights is kind of. It is one that I, I maybe just again. I just saw it on film in a theater with the director <laughs> and an actor introducing it, so I'm a That's little, cool. <laughs> you know, re, re, recency bias. But I really was struck by how um, how funny that guy was at 26, 27 years old. Because I feel like there's a lot of very young, talented filmmakers now, hmm. and I, I don't see the sense of humor. Uh, I see a lot of skill. I see a lot of visual artistry. I see a lot of big swings. I don't see. I don't see. Um, I don't see the comedy chops for some writer directors right now who think they are funny. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs>
3: who I think are amazingly. I'll put it this way. I think Babylon was an amazing looking movie. Absolutely fantastic. I love the cutting of it. I love so much about it. I think anytime it tried to be funny, I was just like, oh boy, this I is I heard very mixed things about that. <laughs> yeah, it's worth seeing for sure. And I'm glad I saw it. I just think there's a couple of writer directors right now who I, I don't. I, I just, I'm kind of marvel marveled still that. Paul Thomas Anderson at that age was able mm. to be that that funny. In yeah. A way that, uh, but anyway, but that you know you can ask me tomorrow and I have a different answer. Cool.
1: <laughs> I love that you mentioned Clueless. I have a Clueless drink in the in the book. And, I saw that. Yeah. And I uh, it, yeah I really try to. It's like I think the world was like changed. Like there was like before Clueless and after Clueless. is the way that it that changed everything. Um, it's a
3: really great movie, and that's another movie I remember seeing on opening weekend. And I you know I was I don't know I was like nineteen or twenty and probably yeah. thought I was I was definitely past teen movies at that point. But that one, I you know, I loved Fast Time, So if she's making another teen movie, and right. I, I still think it's watching it now. I'm like, these jokes are it holds up. They're nine, yeah, they're '90s specific only in that the movie is set in the '90s. Like yeah. everything else about that, about high school, is pretty much still true. Um, and they had cell know, phones, Coolio. so it's like it's enough yeah. you
1: can relate to it today. <laughs> it's just enough yeah. technology where it's
3: familiar still. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's it's. it's that is a really. That's just one another one that we seen watched. and I was like, this holds up remarkably well. Like uh, this was this was a good time.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, do you have any? What's your? Uh, are you writing? Are you writing anything right now? What's your like? What's going on with you currently? Because I love this book, and I loved your writing. So.
3: Oh, thanks. I'm doing. I did a podcast for The Ringer last year, or a, a year and a half ago, about Siskel and Ebert, and I'm doing oh, cool. a new. I'm doing a podcast uh for spotify and the ringer right now and I, they haven't announced what it's about so i actually don't know if i can even say um, right, well. which makes it sound like it's much juicier than it is but um <laughs> it is about film history uh in a very specific way oh, so i've been great. very, very cool. excited to do that
1: yeah. i'm on a, i'm on our ringer podcast too i'm on recipe club with uh, yes. my oh, yeah, former cool. boss david chang yeah so so i guess we're we're podcast neighbors um, By the way, I'm
3: so sorry. My landline, which we only have for earthquake emergencies and is not rung in two years, is ringing. So we can, if you need to redo something, uh, no from the last it's, minute. Let it's me
1: a now. it's a 90s reference. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's true.
3: I have a I have a landline. Look, I, I sometimes I still do phone interviews on landlines. Right, but yeah, there's. Still, there's I hope it, it's not an actual what, what
1: inter- earthquake <laughs> happening right now.
3: Yeah, no, it's not. It's just okay. it's a telemarketer. But it is when the phone does ring every once in a while. It is genuinely jarring. It's like being in Scream. You're like, oh my god, like, why is, we have a phone. Why is it ringing? Um, yeah, I should. Uh, if my wife ever picked up the phone, I would call it and do the scream voice at some point. But she's she has not picked up this phone in many years. So there's no reason to.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Sure, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. This is a real pleasure and a, kind of a dream come true for me. So.
3: Oh, thanks, John. Good luck with the book. It looks really cool. I looked at the page you sent me. I uh, I don't drink, but I would drink some of those, uh, the ones that have the alcohol-free version. So that's very cool. Yeah,
1: we have. I got about, about 12% alcohol-free version. Cool. Drinks, that's so. great. That's all we need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again, and um, yeah, have a good one.
3: You too. Thank you. Take care, John.
1: All right, bye-bye. Yeah. Saved by the Bellini is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.